0: Okay, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans 13, and you can stand as you find that. Romans 13, I'll be reading the first ten verses. Romans 13:1. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of you, because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. Let's pray. God, we thank you for sending your Son to us, the gift God that you've given to this world, and that He entered into this world even with its um, authority structures under Rome, under israel, and and lived in obedience to you and God, we know that He has been given to us not just as a model for us to imitate but as our very life that He would live in us, Lord the obedient life that he lived while here on earth. And so, Father, we just pray for understanding and for your grace. And we thank you, God, for the ministry you've given to us by your indwelling Spirit, that we might know you and walk with you in truth, and that our lives might honor you in all that we do. And we again thank you, Father, for just shedding your mercy upon us by giving us the gift of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, being that this is the Sunday before Christmas, um, I I really, as I always do, wrestle with whether to give a Christmas sermon, the Sunday before or the Sunday after, or to do both. Whether to depart from where we've been in Romans, and as I have been reflecting on Christ coming into this world, God becoming man. One phrase in particular has kind of just stood out to me this year in meditating on, on, on that. And it has been that phrase in Isaiah where it says, "...the government shall rest upon his shoulders." And here in Romans 13, where I just read, it's about the government and how a Christian relates to government. So I thought, well, there's some connection here with Christmas." But just to to keep you know the the with bringing the the, the ends together a little bit with Christmas and Romans thirteen, if you keep in mind and you can even just just flip over there in your Bibles to Luke chapter one, two passages here Mary and Zacharias and and their response when they realize that the that God incarnate is going to come into this world, that the virgin shall be with child, that the Savior will be born. And this is what Mary says and just again look at the focus of her, of Mary as she as she responds to to what the Lord has done in 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 um in in her in, in her body in verse Chapter 1, verse 46, and Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. So those first few verses, she's focused on what God has done for her personally. Even calling God her Savior, which means that Mary needed a Savior. That's very important in some circles. And then in verse 50, she moves to, to the implication of Christ coming into this world for the world. Verse 50, or for Israel in particular. And His mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear Him. He has done mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who were proud in thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers and their, from their thrones, and He has exalted those who were humble. And He has filled the hungry with good things. He sent away the rich empty-handed, and He has given help to Israel His servant in remembrance of His mercy, as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and His offspring forever. And so you can see political and social implications to Christ coming. That's what she's thinking of. She's thinking of the blessing to herself, but also to the blessing that will come to society as things are made right, that the lofty are brought down, that the hungry are fed, political and social implications to Christ coming. So she's thinking in terms of the impact upon government. And now look at, at Zacharias when he responds after, his, after his, um, he's able to speak again and it says in verse 68 Zacharias says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy Toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, speaking of John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give to His people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace." Zacharias also understands that Jesus is coming in order to give forgiveness of sins and to show us the way to be saved. But again, in Zacharias' prophecy here, much of it is political and social. He will deliver us from our enemies. The salvation will be from our enemies. And then with Anna and Simeon in chapter 2. Again, it says concerning Simeon in verse 25 of chapter 2. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel." And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and at least part it seems about what Simeon was thinking of was more than personal salvation, but all, but the salvation of Israel politically—that there would be peace that would come to Israel—and then with Anna, and it says in verse thirty-eight. And at that moment, she came in, came up, and began giving thanks to God, and continued to speak to all those of Him to those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. So they weren't just thinking individually, they were also thinking of the corporate implications of Christ's coming, for good reason. Now if you go back in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 9 is what, one of the passages that they had in mind as they spoke about Christ being born. Isaiah chapter 9 in verse 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. And then skipping down to verse 4... For thou shalt break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult, the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no no end in the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it uphold it with justice and righteousness and then on forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this and so in the same passages that say a son will be born to us a child will be born his name will be called wonderful counselor mighty god there will be no end to his government and he, there will be no end to the increase of his government And so we see the political and social implications that these people were very much focused on when they understood that Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, was being born. Chapter 11 of Isaiah. Again it says, Then a shoot will spring up from a stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what he sees. At the end of verse 4, And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. And so again, in the very passages that speak about the coming of Christ and what He is like, it almost goes immediately to the physical destruction of enemies on earth and the establishment of His kingdom. No wonder these people, when Jesus came, they were going, hallelujah, the Romans are going to be overthrown, because they understood their Old Testament, and they understood from the prophecies of Daniel that they are living during the days of the last empire on earth, human empire. They are living, it would seem, at the end of the time of the Gentiles that believed to them. They believed because the damp prophecies of Daniel were that there would be the Babylonians, there would be the Medes and the Persians, and, and then it comes on through to the Greeks and then to the Romans. And after all, they're living under a Roman oppression. And after all, the Christ, the Messiah, who would destroy these governments and establish His own reign, has come. So we shouldn't be too hard on them when they they anticipate political change because Christ has been born. And no wonder they were anticipating that. So many of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Son of God, concerning the Christ being born, also pertain to political change, that this Christ would establish His kingdom and that He would overthrow all of His enemies. But remember the message of John the Baptist. Repent, you Israelites. Repent. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He didn't say, behold the king who's going to overthrow the Romans. That's the message that you would have expected. And still people were coming to him by the droves. It almost would have seemed heretical. But John, even Zacharias is saying he is coming to bring, us, to bring salvation from our enemies. And John the Baptist doesn't say a word about salvation from our enemies. His dad focused on that in his prophecy. And his prophecy was correct. He was filled with the Spirit. But when John proclaims Jesus, he says nothing about the political and social implications of Christ's coming. He says, repent, repent. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now we know the Lamb of God eventually is going to come again in Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, the Lamb of God, when He comes again, He's spoken of as a wrathful Lamb. Not a meek and mild Lamb. But He will come in wrath, and the book of Revelation describes it and says, Behold the wrath." Of the Lamb. But the first time he came, he did not come as a conquering king. He came as the meek and mild baby who came to take away the sin of the world. The next time, eventually, he will come as king, destroy all the kingdoms of this earth, and establish his own kingdom. In the meantime, when it comes to government, We live in Romans 13. We'd rather live (laughs) with revelation. Behold the wrath of the Lamb. But we don't. We live in Romans 13. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Now, as soon as we read that verse, we always think, all of us go, but. And we start thinking about, is it ever right to resist government? I think, I know I do, I move too quickly to that question. And don't pause long enough over what he has stated so clearly. Let every person be in subjection To the governing authorities. And remember, the governing authority at this time is an anti Christ government. Nero is on the throne, and he will soon be lighting up the streets of Rome with the bodies of Jews and Christians, impaled on post, dipped in oil, and struck with fire to light up the streets of Rome when he burns rome to the ground himself he will burn he will blame the burning on jews and christians and ha- so as to have an excuse to persecute them this is not a good man and paul knew what he's like he's experienced his prisons firsthand he's been beaten even while being a roman citizen he was beaten while he in jailed wrongly while he was in philippi beaten other times that Second Corinthians speaks about that the Bible doesn't even mention, many times suffered at the hand of this government, and yet he never once says anything other than, submit yourselves to this government. This is difficult. He knew that this was a government which God had every intention of overthrowing. But he tells the Christians, submit to it. There is no government There is no authority except from God. And those which which exist are established by God. Another interesting thing about Christmas. For the Jews, it's not a Christmas holiday. It's Hanukkah holiday, right? Hanukkah, for the Jews, is the celebration of basically... A feast not sanctioned in Scripture. Scripture doesn't know anything about the feast that they celebrate. It's a feast where during the reign of Antiochus, a Greek general who was ruling over Jerusalem, Antiochus profaned the temple. The temple that the the returning exiles after the Babylonian captivity had built. He profaned it with pig's blood. And so a certain family of the Jews, the Maccabees, rose up against Antiochus and they started guerrilla warfare against him with the help of other Jews. And they were able to, to, to push Antiochus out of Jerusalem and to purify the temple. Well, when they came in to purify it, one of the first things that they had to do under Jewish ordinance was to light the candelabra, which was to be burning constantly in the temple. But it's a special kind of oil that it would take for to lighting that, that candelabra, not just any kind of oil. It had to be the right kind of oil. Well, they only had a day's supply, but it takes several n- days. It takes about eight days to make this particular kind of oil. And so they only had a day's supply, so they said, well, we need to burn the day's supply that we have, and not wait until it takes the time it takes to make the rest of the oil. Well, during the time that they were burning that one day's oil, making the right kind of oil, that one day's oil never exhausted. And so that's why it's an eight-day holiday. Because for eight days, the length of time it took them to make more oil, that one day's amount never exhausted, according to their Jewish tradition. And so Hanukkah is also called the Feast of Lights because they were celebrating the lighting of the candelabra and that that candelabra did not extinguish during that eight days. But what they're celebrating is the political resistance of the powers that be. They pushed back against Antiochus and they were successful and it would look as though God blessed that by not allowing the oil to to be exhausted during those eight days. So, hallelujah, God is for resistance. Hanukkah says so. And again, a big portion of the Roman church was Jewish. And so they were at this time celebrating Hanukkah. And they were saying, this had to be big in their minds. And then you think about about Jesus. when, When the wise men came... And they, and, and they go first to Herod, and they say, where is the king of Israel? And Herod figures out that he's going to be born in Bethlehem, and Herod kills every male child two years old and younger in the environs of Bethlehem. Jesus and his parents didn't stay around for that. They resisted by fleeing. And God gave them through angelic warning what was going to happen and directed them to go to Egypt to get away from it. And then when God directed them to come back to Egypt, Herod was still alive and God said, don't go to Jerusalem, go back up into the area of Galilee to Nazareth. And so God didn't just lead the people blindly into trouble, nor did He expect them just to stay in the midst of trouble. They could flee. They didn't have to just surrender to the persecution Of the government. But it still stands. There is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Now, this is a huge topic. Man, we could spend weeks talking about the Christian's role in relation to government. We're not going to do that, obviously. Listen to our Constitution. Sometimes I think we have this more in our minds than we do the Bible. I know I do. It is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object invinces a design to reduce them upon under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. I said the Constitution, that is um, the Declaration of Independence for our country. It is our right, it is our duty to throw off the oppressor, the despotic rule. But is it what Scripture is saying? And I'm not saying there's necessarily a contradiction But the emphasis of Scripture is not rising up and resisting. But it is submitting, submitting as unto the Lord. We know that certain things the Bible does tell us to do in relation to government. To pray for it, 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. To submit to its authority, even over in 1 Peter as well as here. It says to submit to those in authority. To work peacefully and legally to change it which includes voting, disobey its oppressive commands on occasion. I'll mention that in a minute. Flee from its oppression if possible, even as Mary and Joseph did in fleeing to Egypt. Patiently endure its oppression for Christ's sake. These are the main things that Scripture has given us in regard in our options and our responsibilities toward government. Is submission absolute? Francis Schaeffer says one either confesses that God is the final authority or one confesses that Caesar is Lord. That's a pretty good contrast. One either confesses that God is the final authority or one confesses that Caesar is Lord. Kirby Anderson, a Christian apologist, writes, If there is never a circumstance under which a Christian would disobey the state, then ultimately the state has become God. Therefore, civil disobedience must be permitted. The unbelieving um, poet and philosopher Henry David Thoreau, in his essay on the duty of civil disobedience, insisted that moral principle comes first over obedience to the state. Samuel Rutherford, the Christian writer and philosopher, wrote an essay called "Lex Rex." Lex Rex, the law is king. And he wrote, the king was not the ultimate authority. God's law was the ultimate authority. And then we have the biblical examples of resistance to authority. The Hebrew midwives, when Pharaoh said, kill the male Hebrew babies. And they did not. We have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were told to bow down and worship the golden image. And they refused to. We have Daniel who was told that he could not pray any longer, and he continued to pray. And we have Peter and John, who were told by the Sanhedrin Council to stop preaching in the name of Jesus, and they continued to anyway. It's saying, you have to decide whether it's right in the sight of God to obey men rather than to obey God. For us, we cannot stop preaching in His name. Two common points with each of these incidences. One is that there was a direct, clear contradiction, violation of the Word of God that was being mandated. It wasn't kind of iffy. You know, and again, like all of us pretty much would be of one mind, I think, concerning abortion, that it is wrong, and it is not something the state should ever mandate, and we should resist it. But the state in this country does not mandate abortion. It may come to that point, but at this point it is not. We We should still be against it, we should encourage in every way possible, for young women to keep their babies and not to abort them. But we are not yet living in a country where it is mandated that it has to take place. These things where these people disobeyed government. There was a clear mandate which would cause them to violate what God has said if they obeyed it. And secondly, there was each on each of those four examples. There seemed to be a willingness to suffer the consequences of their disobedience. So we'll disobey. They didn't try to overthrow government, but they willingly disobeyed and seemed to be willing to suffer the consequences. I appreciate, on um, a little bit of a of a parallel point for today, the ministry of Brother Andrew, which was very common, very well known when I was in high school back in the In the early 70s, mid-70s, and he wrote the book, or at least the book was written, um, God Smuggler. He didn't write it, it was written about him. And he and his ministry were smuggling Bibles behind the Iron Curtain. And for a long, long time, because of that book, it was believed that they would just just flat-out lie when crossing the Iron Curtain if they were asked, do you have Bibles in your vehicle? And they were represented in the book as, as lying and said, no, we do not have Bibles which in fact itself was a misrepresentation. And Brother Andrew has since clarified that, and he says, I didn't write that book, I didn't authorize that book, and what that book says about me and my ministry could not be anything further from the truth. He says, we will break the law of communist countries by taking Bibles into their their land, because they are bad laws. They are against the law of God. But if those countries, if those immigration officers, customs officials should ask us specifically, do you have Bibles, we will never lie. And we have people in communist prisons to the, right now at this moment, he wrote, because they refuse to lie, because God's Word says you cannot lie. And so they're willing to suffer the consequences. They'll take the Bibles in, willing to suffer the consequences of going to prison if they're asked, do you have a Bible? This is not an easy thing. Very hard. That the reason it's so hard again is because nobody likes to be told what to do. That's part of it. Not the whole part of it, but that's a big part of it. And again, I have to pull back from this and and I've been praying about this in my own life and in preparation for this, I'm just going, Lord, is there an area of my life where if anybody else were to look at me and say, Charlie is not... In subjection to the governing authorities. Then it's wrong. Unless it is something that is clearly violating the word of God. We need to live in subjection to the governing authorities. You know I'll get a little personal here. We did an an expansion on our house. A number of years ago. Where the attic space we turned into living space. Well, now, that's taxable. But nobody can tell from the outside that we did that. And so, as far as the county is concerned, nothing has happened. But anybody that's been in my house knows there's an upstairs. And anybody, because it's a matter of public record, can get on the county tax records and see how my home is described. And you can see whether it's described as a one-story home or a two-story home. Or actually one and a half because it's not a full second story. But you can see whether I'm paying taxes on the full dwelling or not. Matter of public record. So if anybody wants to see whether that guy that preaches at Bernie Bible Church or not is in subjection to the governing authority, all he's got to do is get on the public county tax records and see what I'm paying taxes for. And you'll know whether I'm in subjection to the, go- to the governing authorities or not. Now, I didn't even realize how easy it is to access those records when I went down to the county. And I didn't want to do it because it's money. And I like my money. And I've got to sit down with them. And every time I'm thinking, you're appraising my house too high as it is. But I've got to sit down with them and say, I've made an addition to my home. And this is what it is. And lay it out for them, give them the square footage, and it's there. It's a part of the record. And I don't like how high our tax bill is. But it doesn't say pay your taxes when you like them. Pay your taxes when you agree with them. It says be in subjection to the governing authorities. And that includes specifically, as he's going to say later in this paragraph, paying your taxes. So just to go through the passage a little more, the command is very clear. Be in subjection. And the rationale is three things. Number one, there is no authority except from God. Number two, those that exist are established by God. And three, those who resist authority have opposed the ordinance of God and they will receive condemnation upon themselves. So look at this again. So again, verse 1. Be in subjection, that's the command. And then the rationale for the command. Number one, there is no authority except from God. Number two, those which exist are established by God. And number three, therefore, verse 2, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And those who oppose will receive condemnation upon themselves. Now that would mean all citizens not just pagan citizens. He's writing to Roman Christians. Roman Christians, be in subjection to Rome. Or you will receive, you Christians will receive condemnation. And that condemnation will come from God via Rome. Look how he explains this. So then he speaks of the condemnation. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Again, we know that there, that is not always the case. We know that there are times that government punishes people for good. But generally speaking, governments are in the business of punishing evildoers. Generally speaking. Most governments in the world, whether we like their laws or not, think of the Muslim world, we do not like Sharia law. But... Even under Sharia law, they are punishing evildoers. We may not like how they define evil always, but they exist to punish evildoers, and they're sometimes pretty zealous about it. Rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you again speaking to Christians? Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you. And that word for minister is the same word that's used of people people that are working in the church. God has two classes of ministers on earth. Spiritual ministers and government ministers. And it's the same word. Now when I was a kid, and last week I talked to you about the revenge I took out of my older brother on occasion... And my dad wanted me to clarify that we were not enemies all our life, and and we actually became very close. I was my brother's best man in his wedding, and we were we were very close brothers um, for for the second half of our lives. But um, I used to say, in my zeal for revenge, for revenge, because sometimes because people would see they just did something to me, and now I'm plotting, and I'm thinking how can I get even. How can I get one up? And, and their response would be, Charlie, they quote to me, Romans 12, Revenge is mine, saith the Lord. And I would respond, but he shares. <laughs> now there's truth to that. The error of it is, he does not share the prerogative for vengeance with individuals. But he does share the prerogative of vengeance with the state. God gives the state his prerogative for vengeance. We have to understand that. It is God exercising vengeance when the state punishes evildoers. God's doing it. Now again, I'm not saying in every single instance, because the state can abuse its authority. But that's what the state exists for. For God to work through for the punishment of evil. It is a minister of God. And then he says, look at the, at the rest of verse 4. For it is a minister of God, he says it a second time, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. And the part that I didn't read, it bear, it, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. Sometimes, particularly believers that come from countries that are very much opposed to capital punishment, they just cannot read sword as equating with capital punishment. But it does. And again, we have to understand, God exercises capital punishment. What is the wages of sin? death. Who says so? God. God exercises capital punishment. The wages of sin is death. And God will use the state to exercise His prerogative for capital punishment. Sometimes God will just intervene supernaturally and take people out. Most of the time, He doesn't. He intervenes through government to take people out. That's how He works most of the time. And make no mistake, it is God's intervention. It is God acting through the governments which He has instituted. God is ministering for the punishment of evil, even to the point of capital punishment. Verse 5, Wherefore it is necessary... To be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but it's a very real possibility. Even Christians can deserve to be put to death, and they should be put to death when they deserve it. It is the prerogative of the state, just as it would be the prerogative of God not to kill that person if he deserves death. So the state doesn't always have to exercise capital punishment, but it does have the power. And when it does exercise that power, it is fully within its rights, as God has given those rights. So we need to be in subjection, one, because of wrath, and secondly, because of conscience. Our conscience would tell us so. But also there is just the very real fear that we don't want to have this happen to us. There are, again, So many people, Christians and otherwise, that have gotten crossways with the law. And again, you can see how how it's so important for us to be training our children from the earliest ages. Learn to respond when I say no the first time. No means no. Because we don't want our kids to get crossways ultimately with the government. Because if they don't learn obedience from us, they may have to learn obedience from the state. And it'll be much worse. But God wants His people to learn obedience. That's why, again, Romans on three different occasions will speak of the obedience of faith. It is the primary evidence that we are walking with God, that we have a living, vital relationship with Jesus Christ. The primary evidence is that we show our love through our obedience. If you love me, you will obey me. And how can I say I'm obeying God and disobeying government, which God has put in my life? I can't. I hate filling out taxes. As much as I want to fill out my tax reports accurately, there is not a time that I do it that I feel like I I may have messed up on something. It's gotten so complicated that it's almost impossible for an individual, even with simple tax returns, to fill out his tax returns. And to have absolute confidence that he did it correctly. There's been a couple of times I've had the IRS write me and say, you made a mistake. <gasps> you know, one time, last year, it was in my favor. Another time, it wasn't. But in good conscience, trying to fill out the taxes to the best of my ability. And yet I know that, I'm, that I'm, I might be wrong and the government could come after me and say, you owe penalties and interest because you filled out your taxes wrong. Well, I'll have to pay them. But at least that I can say, because of conscience sake, I did it to the best of my ability. I didn't willingly fudge on my taxes. I didn't knowingly do that. For conscience sake, as well as for wrath. For because of this, now he speaks of the specific things, the specific applications of how we live in subjection to government. And he mentions, beginning here in verse 6, for because of this you also pay taxes. And then he says, for rulers are servants of God. Twice they're called ministers of God, now servants of God. Devoting to themselves to this very thing. What? To collecting taxes? It seems that way. But I think Paul obviously meant more than that. But we are to pay our taxes... To the tax collector as servants of God. Render to all second application to what is due them. If you owe taxes, pay your taxes. Even if you don't like them. Even if you don't agree with them. You think of all the different things the Roman tax money was funding. And it was funding a lot of stuff these Christians could not have agreed with. Pay your taxes. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. We cross the border going into Mexico. It's a corrupt nation. Not the United States isn't. But it's a little more visible in Mexico than it is here. And almost every person you come in contact with you know that you can get a little better service a little faster through the line if you, if you give a little bit of money. And in Spanish, it's called the bite. Because you're giving a little bite. They're taking a little bite out of you. And, that, and, and, and they don't even view it as a bribe. The government, because they, they figure, well, everybody's being bribed, why pay them more? Might as well keep the salaries low because everybody's getting bribes anyway, and so it just continues to perpetrate itself. I've paid those bribes. I'm not proud of it. Maybe it wasn't the right thing to do. I have my friend Satish John that's living in India, just as corrupt, just as much bribery money is being paid. And here is an Indian national. And he never pays a bribe because it's not what is due. This says pay what is due. Custom to whom custom, tax to whom tax not bribe people who owe nobody is owed a bribe so we do not have to pay bribes and my friend satish has seen countless times when god has intervened to to go before him when he has refused to pay bribe money nobody has to pay a bribe we sometimes choose to it's not right that it would be demanded of us But it is not obligated by God to have to pay a bribe. We do have to pay custom taxes and to give fear and honor. I know different people that are in positions of authority. And police officers, game wardens, that kind of thing. And I have so respected them on different occasions when, I've, when I know that they have had to do something or heard a judge give a pronouncement that they didn't agree with. And yet they have respectfully given honor to the man who is above them that they do not agree with. And they, they do their duty, and they respectfully disagree, but they never show dishonor or disrespect. And again... This needs to be seen in my life, with my wife, my children. If I get pulled over on the side of the road and I don't deserve to be pulled over, I have no right to become indignant with that officer. Honor to whom honor is due. I remember bird hunting one time when I was a kid, and I was falsely accused by a federal game warden of shooting birds more birds than what I'd shot and throwing away even a bird that I hadn't thrown away. And I was indignant. I didn't throw away any birds. I was just bowing up to him. Federal game warden. Well, he thought I had because my brother had. And we were dressed exactly the same. And he just got us confused when he came walking up on us. But he'd been in a tree with binoculars watching us. And, And sure enough, one of us had tossed a bird that he shouldn't have tossed you're not supposed to do that, it's illegal. But the bird was blown to smithereens and said, what's the point in keeping it? Tossed it. And as it turned out, we were still under our limits, so it was no big deal. Nobody got fined. But we were the only people in that field that day, out of probably 50 or more people that were hunting, that didn't get fined. The only ones. The governor of Louisiana was there that day. They all got fined. I remember, my, and I know him because I talked to the, one of the game wardens that was involved. He used to be the game warden Norman Comfort. And he goes, I was in that field that day. Every single person in that field got fined that day. We were the exception. Praise God. <laughs> Another day, it may not have been the case. But it should always be the case. Fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. The last part of the chapter of this, of this paragraph, he moves into speaking about love Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. I believe, you know, my first inclination here is that Paul, being the linear thinker that he is, he's not changing subjects, but he's just moving right into it. And so, because he's been talking about owing and rendering what is due, he says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love them. And then he'll finish up this paragraph, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. And I wonder if he's not even saying here, maybe the translators understand it, because they're not, they're not capitalizing law at the end of verse 10. If you notice, in your Bible is keeping it in a small L. And so I think the translators are even understanding here that Paul is not speaking of the Mosaic law, even though in terms of the Mosaic law, as Jesus said, love is the fulfillment of the law. But it would seem that maybe Paul is even speaking in terms of secular law. The, the law of a secular state, love your neighbor. And in most instances, you will be fulfilling the law. Even at his hill, with all the different rules that we have, and we spend about a day and a half or so going through why we do what we do at the very beginning of the term, so everybody's on the same page with us, and we try to explain to them, every single one of these rules that we have is simply so that the community would function as a community. We wouldn't have any of these rules if everybody would simply live by love. But we don't. In love, you will go to bed at a decent hour and not keep the light on where your roommate can't sleep. In love, you'll get up on time and show up to class and not be snoozing through class because you appreciate the professor and the time that he's spent preparing. But we don't allow ourselves to be governed by love. Therefore, we have rules. And it's the same thing, sadly enough, in secular society, that even Christians are not governing themselves by love. And so we have laws. And if I expect other people to be under those laws, then I need to be in subjection to those laws as well. That's the way that it works. Again, doing unto others as I would have them do unto And if I expect somebody else to be in subjection to laws, if I want laws to govern how my neighbor fires his gun, then I need to be um, responsible in how I fire my gun as well, or how I drive my car, whatever the issue is. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. And that neighbor may be an unbelieving neighbor. That neighbor may be just the community that we live within. Owe nothing, back to verse 8, to anyone except to love one another. I personally am, am, am not prepared at this point in my life to say that Paul is speaking about all forms of credit and loans. He's just been talking about taxes, custom, fear, and honor. There's nothing in that list about taking out loans. I have Christian friends who are under the conviction that God would never have them take out a loan for any reason whatsoever. And God has blessed them as they have obeyed their conscience on that matter. I have a friend who has never never purchased a house except by paying cash for it because he will not take out a loan. That's been his conviction. He's followed it in obedience to God and God has blessed him. I had no conviction about taking out loans until I did so as a seminary student. And then I got some convictions about it. Because I recognized the bondage that it does place me under. I wanted to be able to go off during the summer and, be, and go down to Central America for missions one summer. I couldn't because I had to pay off loans instead. I had to stay in the United States and work. And so it's more of a distaste for me. I don't want to be in bondage. And so we have done everything we can to, to stay debt-free. We have personally had a mortgage on our house. And it hasn't been such that it has hindered us in the decisions that we've made as far as just where to go and, you know, and that kind of thing. And it's been well within our means. But I know that God would not have us to get into a position where we get so bound up with loans that we can't move in any direction. When we have just become slaves to the loans and we have no freedom before God. That is not what God wants in our lives. I know that Jesus himself spoke about with the parable of the talents, and he rebuked the man who took the one talent and buried it, and said you should have at least put it in the bank where it would have gathered interest. In in sanctioning interest and the financial system of banks, it would seem that he was also approving of loans. Because that's the way that banks get, pay interest on money is by loaning our money out to other people. It's not that he was saying that loans are always right, but it would seem that neither is he saying loans are always wrong. Throughout the Mosaic Law, there are many times when there are instructions given on how the people were to loan their money to, to their fellow man, to their fellow Israelite, as opposed to those who were not Israelites. And interest and the amount of that interest was a big part of that. So I don't know all these things, but I, I know that God wants me to walk in freedom as much as possible, not be slave to debt. I know, according to Habakkuk, where one of the woes that he pronounces against Israel and against even, it would seem, the Chaldeans is that they have made themselves rich through loans. And that if I am looking to borrow money in order to improve my manner of life just, just because I'm not happy with my standard of living? And that, may, that would seem to express a discontent with where God has placed me. And God would have me to be content and not try to increase my level of income through loans or my standard of living through loans. Woe to those who have made themselves rich through loans, the scripture says. But again, personally, I don't feel that he's saying that there is never a time or a place to have to owe somebody money. We're having potluck today, but on other Sundays you may go out for lunch. The way that our system works here is that you eat your food before you pay for it. So that means you have a debt. As soon as you've put that first bite in your mouth, you have an obligation to pay that person for the food that has been placed on your table. We use electricity before we've paid for it. And so we pay after the fact. But it says, Owe nothing to anyone. So again, for these reasons, I think that the scripture is not saying there is no place for having any debt. But the debts should be paid. There's one debt that will never be paid. And that is the debt of love. It will never be fully paid. We will always have the obligation... To love. We can never say, I've loved you enough. It's over. We'll never come to that point. None of us can ever say we've loved perfectly because we haven't. We're sinners. No one has ever loved fully. No one has ever loved perfectly other than God Himself. And so that obligation is always there. We get them too often reversed. We owe too much money and we think that we've paid enough when it comes to love. And he says, back off, make sure you can pay your debts and don't think you have ever paid your debt when it comes to love. How does this all relate again? This is the life of Christ in the Christian until he comes back as the, lamb of, as the wrathful lamb. Right now he came into this world to take away our sins. And he lived in subjection to the governing authorities all the way to the end. And until he comes back again as the wrathful lamb, he lives in me and he lives in you to be in subjection as unto God to the governing authorities. Let me close us in prayer.